0: and welcome to an all new season of 13, the biweekly podcast that asks 13 questions of Colgate University community members. I'm your host Dan DeVries and today I am so excited to be joined on the program by Colgate alumnus and well-respected journalist Howard Feynman, a member of the class of 1970. A lifelong journalist in nearly every medium, Feynman cut his teeth as a cub reporter in 1973 at the Courier-Journal in Kentucky, covering environmental and energy issues and specifically writing about strip mining, coal mining, water pollution, air pollution, natural gas, and nuclear power. He covered the Love Canal disaster and continued covering the environment when he was transferred to that paper's Washington Bureau in 1978. In Washington, D.C., Feynman also covered then-Rep Al Gore's initial environmental hearings. While working as a daily newspaper reporter, Feynman attended night school at the Brandeis School of Law at the University of Louisville, eventually earning his law degree before moving to the famed Washington Bureau of Newsweek in 1980, where one of his colleagues was Colgate alumni Gloria Borger. Feynman became the chief political correspondent and the senior editor and deputy Washington bureau chief, covering Congress and national elections there for more than three decades. In 2008, Random House published Feynman's book, The 13 American Arguments, which went on to become a national bestseller. In 2011, Feynman departed Newsweek to join longtime friend Arianna Huffington at the Huffington Post as lead political correspondent. Feynman went on to become editorial director and then global editorial director of the website, and during his tenure, the Huffington Post became the first website to win a Pulitzer Prize for reporting. Feynman left the Huffington Post in 2018 to write for online editions of NBC and MSNBC, Real Clear Politics, and several opinion pieces for the New York Times and the Washington Post. Through the years, Feynman has taught budding journalists at the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School of Communications. And in addition to always writing, Feynman appeared regularly on NBC and MSNBC television shows, as well as Comedy Central's The Daily Show and The Colbert Report. Feynman has appeared on PBS's Charlie Rose, Nightline, Face the Nation, Fox News Sunday, The News Hour with Jim Lehrer, The McLaughlin Group, and Larry King Live. Feynman received his master's degree in journalism from Columbia University School of Journalism. And I am so
1: excited to welcome you to 13. I'm delighted to be here. I used to joke that uh, if I had no place else to appear on TV, I would stand in front of the security camera at the CBS. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I I, uh, am delighted to be with you guys. All right. Well, I think we should start just at the beginning.
0: I'd like to talk about the early days of uh, your media experience and maybe even the earliest as editor of the Colgate Maroon News. So um, I'm curious about your time on campus at that moment and um, the big stories that came your way when you were the editor there.
1: Well, I, I would say, Dan, that my, my uh, journalistic uh, life was... was uh, Founded at Colgate, and, and uh, even though I'd written some in high school, uh, uh, the, what was then called the Maroon was where I wanted to be in terms of extracurricular activities on campus. And really, it became not so much extracurricular, but curricular in the sense that I learned a lot about journalism there. Uh, I, all of it good, because we had a terrific crew of people on what was then called the Maroon, uh, starting in my freshman year. The editor in chief uh, was a guy named Bruce Buck, who went on to become a big lawyer and uh, international lawyer, and and is now the uh, CEO of one of the big uh, Premier League teams in in in, in, in uh, the UK of all things. Hmm. Uh, the year after that, the editor in chief was a, a fellow named Norm Fisher, Jack Norm and Jack Fisher, an absolutely brilliant brilliant guy, uh, who believe it or not is now probably the leading Zen master in America. And this is a cruise of extraordinary people. Um, the, uh, the, the editor of the year before me was uh, a man named Mark Goldman, who's a uh, prominent uh, doctor in New York. And then uh, I, uh, I succeeded uh, him uh, and brought with me a crew that I'd been with at the Maroon pretty much all the way through a really, uh, brilliant group of, of guys, uh, was still all male school at the time, so I can say guys and literally mean guys. It was uh, uh, my, my right-hand man, and in some respects I was his right-hand man, is Mark Rosenbaum, who went on to a great career in journalism himself. He was an editor at the uh, Des Moines Register, and then he uh, worked for NPR for many years as a producer in and in 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 an author, just really, really a great guy whose older brother um uh david rosenbaum was a reporter at the new york times uh during our go at at uh at colgate and uh, and indirectly through uh mark's brother david we all felt we had a tie to the new york times even though it was a a family tie not a not a professional one he he was a, that guy was inspiring to us as well there was a brilliant uh uh, uh student and writer uh, from Rome, New York named Neil Weissman, who uh, was part of our gang. And uh, <clears throat> I think he was the valedictorian of our class uh, and went on to become a, uh, to Yale, uh, I believe it was Yale to get his PhD and, and uh, became an academic administrator. I think he was Dean of the Faculty at Dickinson College. It's just brilliant guy. And another brilliant fellow named Steve Rosenfeld, who uh, became a doctor here in Washington and, and many others. We had great photographers. We had good business side. Uh, and we had the whole third floor of uh, pretty much the whole third floor of the student union was ours mm-hmm. back in the day. And um, and we just went to town. And the big story well, the two big stories. Uh, one, of course, was the Vietnam War and the draft lottery and uh, opposition to the war growing on campus and indeed across the country. And the other big uh, story was discrimination uh, in the fraternity system at Colgate. Mm -hmm. And uh, the big story that I followed and and was the main reporter on had to do with a uh, sit-in that took place, an occupation of the administration building over discrimination in one of the fraternities. And uh, it produced famous pictures that you've probably all seen of of uh, the administration building with about 500 students in it. And uh, national reporters flew in, and NBC News was there, and the New York Times was there. It was, uh, it was quite a story in the spring of 1968. Things were happening all over college campuses around the country, and Colgate was kind of regarded as a backwater, like uh, a, a nice, nice, quiet little liberal arts college uh, up in central New York State. And so it was a real head, head-turner, when, uh, when the student activism basically took over the campus. And we covered it um, and we editorialized about it. We, we uh, supported it. Uh, I even went so far as to uh, do a poll. I printed up uh, uh, a questionnaire to distribute to uh, the kids who were taking over the ad building. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking back on it, that was insane, but I did it. And what's more insane, Two or three hundred kids filled it out. Do you and still have any of that? I do. I have, oh, wow. I have them all. And I'm going to probably turn them over to the uh, archives at some point. Yeah. Uh, so it was it was. And 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 the great thing about it as a proving ground and a and a studies course for journalists is, first of all, we were doing it on our own. Secondly, if we screwed up, we would hear back immediately from our little community up there in Hamilton, New York. In other words, the the readers were close at hand. And if they thought we were going in the wrong direction or messing things up, we would hear. Yeah. And, and we would hear directly. And we yeah. would hear where we lived. And we would hear uh, walking down the street. And there's no better way to learn than to have feedback like that. And we, we took it very, very seriously. And, and I learned a lot. And I would really say that it was the – even though I went on to Columbia Journalism School – in many ways, the best training I had, we taught ourselves and handed down from year to year, generation to generation at the paper. There's a, that's the way to do it. And that's the way we did it. So you were awarded a
0: prestigious Watson fellowship, uh, after graduation. Can you talk about how you put that funding to work and how it ultimately led to your arrest in Ukraine?
1: Um, I'm glad to do that. I, I, I grew up in a, uh, Very large and very wonderful Jewish community in Pittsburgh, Squirrel Hill, which sadly has become better known around the country and the world because of the the, uh, massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue, uh, of uh, of which I was a member and where I I was bar mitzvah and where my parents taught Sunday school. And I wrote about that uh, within hours of the event happening. Uh, I published a piece in the New York Times about that. Uh, about my family's relationship with that place and uh, that, that synagogue and that community. Uh, I love Squirrel Hill. Uh, I love Pittsburgh. Uh, but I wanted to see uh, other things in the world. And one reason I went to Colgate is that uh, Colgate was utterly different from what my background was. Small. I went to a large high school in a big city And I wanted to go to a small college in a small town. Uh, Nevertheless, and maybe because I went to Colgate, I began to be more curious about my family's background, Hmm. about the Jewish immigrant experience uh, in the United States, about where my family had come from in, in what my grandfather called the old country. And so I proposed to uh, the faculty, first to the faculty committee at Colgate and then to the Watson Foundation, uh, what I think was one of the first, if not the first, baby boomer kosher roots project. The idea was I would use the money and uh, buy a Volkswagen bus and travel to all the places in Eastern Europe and Russia that my family had come from. In the eight, starting in the 1880s, and um, and then since that wouldn't take up the whole year, I would uh, go to other places of uh, import in Jewish history, such as Southern Spain, where the great uh, Enlightenment, uh, Spanish Enlightenment, happened, and um, in Germany and um, and uh, Israel. Uh, so that's what they 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 like the idea. And uh, I was awarded that, and uh, I spent a year after Colgate uh, traveling around in my Volkswagen bus, and then leaving the bus in uh, Geneva and flying to Israel for three months, which was what a tourist visa would allow, and and uh, assembled a much clearer picture of my family's background uh, and the uh, story of the Jews after the fall of the Second Temple. And I've continued to be interested in all that. Um, I have a collection of letters that I wrote back to the foundation that I'm using for the sort of family history that I'm doing now, as a matter of fact. And uh, when I was in uh, Ukraine visiting the town that my grandmother was born in, uh, a little town called Bielitserkhof, which means white church, about an hour south of Kiev. Uh, I didn't have a uh, I didn't have a uh, permission from the Soviet government, the then Soviet government of the Soviet Union to travel to that town. Uh, and uh, when I got there, uh, they found me out and uh, took me into custody. And, uh, you know, I could end it up in the gulag, oh. uh, but I was very lucky <clears throat> and uh, they basically slapped me on the wrist and. Sent me back to Kiev, where I got yelled at by the head of the interist uh, uh, tourism agency <laughs> because he was in trouble for letting me get out of their out of their sight. Uh, I guess the bottom line of that episode was that uh, I had I understood why my uh, grandparents on my mother's side had gotten out had left had left uh, that part of the world because they couldn't they couldn't be free to they couldn't be free to be who they were. Mm. And uh, the bottom line of that whole year, all the traveling I did, working on a kibbutz in Israel, uh, traveling on the West Bank, which was then very easy at the time. This is 1971. Uh, going to Dachau in Germany, going to uh, places where my father's side of the family had come from in Lithuania and my mother's side in Ukraine. Uh, I came back to the United I came back thankfully to the United States realizing just how lucky i was uh that my family had come to america and uh i told my 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 father at the time that that was my bottom line that was my lesson and he said well i could have told you that without you ever having gone (laughs) in uh he was a very patriotic guy so that's uh that's that's my story i could Mm. i could fill many podcasts with it but let's leave it there for now
0: (laughs) It's great um, and then, so you come back to the U.S. and uh, you get a job at, at a, a small newspaper in Kentucky, right?
1: Well, it's not really a small newspaper; it's the biggest newspaper in the state. Is it? Yeah, it's the Courier Journal in Louisville, which was a, a very storied paper. Was it the Courier Journal
0: Enterprise at one time, or was it always no, 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 Courier no. Journal?
1: No, no, no. It was. A, they had. A, here's what happened. When I went to Columbia. Uh, I had been told by a friend of my dad's uh, who had gone into uh, publishing and broadcasting uh, and who was at the time the uh, head of the uh, Washington Post Company's television stations. He said, you know, Howard, I look at the newsroom over there at the Post, and and it seems like a lot of those guys started out at smaller papers in the South. Uh, And that was a very astute observation, and it was true because The training ground for uh, great national reporting in the 50s and 60s was the civil rights movement in the South. And the best newspapers, the bravest newspapers, the most bravely factual newspapers, were family-owned newspapers in the South, uh, in places like Charlotte, Winston-Salem, and Raleigh, North Carolina, St. Petersburg, Florida, Nashville, Tennessee, uh, Anniston, Alabama, and, and Louisville, Kentucky. And they were owned by families uh, who were more progressive than the average in the South and set their reporters to work uh, uncovering the racial inequalities, broadcasting it to the nation, writing about it for other papers. And, um, and so I wanted to go to one of those papers. And luckily for me at Columbia, uh, the head of the newspaper division of the, uh, of the curriculum was a guy who'd been a top editor in in Louisville. And so he sent me down to Louisville to interview and basically said, hire this kid. And they did. And, uh, so in the fall of 73, I, I, uh, after graduating from Columbia, I went down to, uh, to, uh, Kentucky and, uh, I couldn't have done anything better. First of all, it was a great newspaper. Secondly, it sort of ran the state journalistically, uh, being distributed from Pikeville to Paducah. The Sunday paper was colossal. Uh, Its responsibilities were great. They had won a Pulitzer Prize for strip mine coverage in 1968. They were the first paper to, big paper to set up an environmental beat. There was no such thing as an environmental beat until basically the Courier-Journal created one in 72 uh just before i got there and uh i i traveled the state to learn america from the ground up i think one of the problems with journalism today and there are many is that reporters don't start this way anymore Mm -hmm. uh back in the day there was a, a complex feeder system not unlike major league baseball yes minor league baseball and you worked you started at a local level and you covered the cops and the courts and local politicians and the city council and so forth up mm-hmm. through the governor. And then if you wanted to go national, you could, but you had a solid base. And, and, uh, so I, I lived in Kentucky for four and a half years and uh, loved every minute of it.
0: Yeah. It's funny. I, I had a question about this, so I'm going to, I'm going to move it up. Okay. It, it's a good connection. Um, from 2005 to 2021, about 2,200 daily newspapers have closed. Journalism as a profession has kind of been in relative turmoil since the early days of the internet. And many of those traditional on-ramps to the industry have now vanished. It's kind of what you were talking about. It's almost like the minor league. Um, So what advice would you give to budding journalists seeking to make a career in
1: the industry when so many of those starting places have vanished? Well, that's a profound question. Because I think one of the problems, not only with journalism, with our politics these days, is the loss of knowledge of local life. People are increasingly swallowed up by uh, online media, whether it's social media or websites of one kind or another, and they uh, lose contact with uh, the the nitty gritty of, of life around them including political and governmental life. I mean, I, I can only offer suggestions based on my own experience. And that would be to somehow, in some way, get to know the country uh, outside of social media and online platforms and outside of the big metropolises of, uh, of communication communication such as New York and Washington and a few other cities you can name, Los Angeles, et cetera. Uh, Because even though big cities have become more important uh, in the scheme of things than than ever before in America and in the world, there's a big country out there. And in order to understand uh, how America works, uh, you still need to understand that. And, uh, if you can't get out of, uh, the big city then go to places in the big city that you wouldn't otherwise go to and, and report on those, uh, and, and, uh, and and do it in a way where you're looking at the whole community, not just one issue or one small slice of people or even big slice of people try to look at it whole and see it clearly. And, um, how you do that? Uh, one of the virtues of changes in the media is that you can get a platform if you're if you're good. Uh, there's a way to do that. Uh, you can you can be uh, writing for Substack. You can be writing for uh, a, a smaller site. You can create your own site. You can do all that. But just my admonition would be when you do it, look at a whole place and not just one slice of people or one issue uh, i know that may sound pollyannish that may sound unrealistic but uh that's that's how i would do it uh because i love the country so much and i hate to see us be in the funk that we're in with the divisions that we have
0: hmm. let's talk a little bit about your time at newsweek Uh, So in 30 – more than 30 years at that publication, you held major roles including chief political correspondent. I would say almost at like peak magazine time in America. Um, And I I think about that transition to being a national political reporter and I'm curious if you have any good stories about, you know, smoky rooms and mysterious sources or, uh, you know, anything that you're um, – you're very proud of um, from your work there. Well, I, I
1: I, I'll tell you, it was uh, the absolute luckiest thing that happened to me. Well, as you say, uh, well, I loved, I loved, I've been so lucky in my, my life and in my career, uh, my life with my, my family and with Colgate, which I, I, I hold so, so close to my heart. And, uh, and uh, on the professional side, you're right. I mean, I hit newspapers when they were still big. Uh, Courier Journal, as I say, in Kentucky was uh, was a colossal force. One of the few things that held the state together is one state. The other being Kentucky basketball, <laughs> and uh, and the governorship. Those three things: the, the new the Courier Journal, the uh, UK basketball, and the governorship held the state together. And then you're right. I came to, I came to Newsweek in 1980. Uh, just as the competition be, between us and Time Magazine reached its, its highest level. We had kind of drawn even with them during, in the 70s, and we really slugged it out in the 80s and early 90s, and 90s which was a tremendous amount of fun. <laughs> Some of my best friends are actually from Time Magazine, in addition to the ones that, uh, of course, I'm near and dear to at Newsweek. Because we had a competition... Uh, between uh, each other, and uh, we were constantly trying to s- scope out what they were doing, when they were trying to scope out what we were doing, and yeah, and the newsstand sales were huge, and the, the cover being on the cover of Time or Newsweek was a huge thing. And I had carte blanche to travel the country uh, reporting on national politics starting in in 1983. Uh, I'll tell you a story that's not so much about a, a, a triumph of mine as a failure, or at least a fear in a failure.
0: Okay,
1: which is that uh, I'd just been chosen chief political correspondent, and it was the fall of uh, 1983, and we were uh, all focused on uh, the New Hampshire primary. And uh, Ronald Reagan was president. Everybody knew he'd be renominated, and most people thought he'd be reelected. Uh, although that was by no means certain. On the Democratic side, uh, the front runner was uh, Senator from Minnesota and uh, Vice President, former Vice President to Jimmy Carter, Walter Mondale. But right then, the baby boomers were beginning to come into national politics, both as candidates and as voters. And that first expressed itself in an explosive way in New Hampshire, in the New Hampshire primary in, in, uh, January of 1984. So it's the fall of 83. Uh, I'd gotten this job really, uh, at a young age, comparatively speaking, and without as much knowledge of the country or national politics as I should have had. <laughs> uh, but I got the job cause I could write. And, um, and because I wanted it. And, uh, and so I'm driving up to New Hampshire in complete dread because <laughs> I don't really know New Hampshire. I don't know the campaigns very well at all. I don't have any great sources inside the campaigns. I'm starting with a, a clean slate at a bad time for me. And uh, unfortunately, the guy who was uh, up in New Hampshire for Time magazine, uh, was the great Walter Isaacson, you know, the famous biographer of, uh, of Einstein and the wise men. And now he's got a new <laughs> book coming out on Elon Musk. And uh, he went to Harvard and he knew everybody, including I mentioned Harvard, because the pollster, the poll taker for the uh, insurgent Gary Hart campaign, Gary Hart being a senator from from uh, uh, Colorado, who was the darling of the of the of the boomers. Uh, his pollster was a guy named Patrick Cadell, who had been uh, Walter's roommate at Harvard. So I was triply screwed. And it's uh, so the week now. Now I go up there. I don't know anything, but I try to meet as many people as I can, and then I go back up on the on the the Friday before the primary on Tuesday the following Tuesday and Newsweek, their editors and their wisdom. And I didn't have that much clout at the time because I was just starting out in my new role. uh, The editors and their wisdom uh, uh, had decided that the cover of the magazine uh, was going to be, can anyone stop Fritz? (sighs) And Fritz of course was the nickname of Walter Mondale. And of course uh, all the editors were following the conventional wisdom, which said that Walter Mondale is going to, roll to the nomination easily and can anybody can anyone stop fritz was going to be the uh the cover line in the cover image and uh sure enough uh it turns out that gary hart is coming on like a freight train even while we have this cover line that says can anybody stop can anyone stop fritz so uh i call my editors i say uh you know, I've been. I, I heard these rumors, and now I'm checking it out. And boy, it sure looks like Gary Hart has a chance up here. And they say, "Well, fine, thank you very much," and hang up the phone, and that's that. And uh, and uh, sure enough, on uh, that Monday, Newsweek comes out with its uh, cover. Can anyone stop Fritz? <sighs> and on Tuesday. The answer is yes, <laughs> Gary Hart. Uh, and I can't tell you how embarrassed I was to go into the press conference uh, the next morning. Uh, you know, or that, uh, yeah, that on Wednesday morning to uh, when everybody in the press corps knew that we would put this cover out there. Can anybody stop Fritz? I don't even remember what Time magazine did. I think they. Uh, I'm not sure they did a cover at all, but we certainly had the wrong one. Oh, man. So that's, that's, uh, that's, that's, that, that was my baptism, my fire in New Hampshire. And even though I've been back to New Hampshire a million times, and even now I got to the point where I knew everybody in the state, you know, I, I, I wasn't going to let that happen to me again. <laughs> I knew everybody in the state. Uh, you know, I never, I never quite, I, I'm still afraid. I, I, I was still afraid to go back up to New Hampshire.
0: Well, it's a good segue to the next question, because um, I know you've had working relationships with a number of past presidential candidates in covering all of these elections. Um, so I would love to know a little bit uh, about some some inside scoop here about your dealings with presidential candidates
1: and ultimately people who became president. Well, in addition to the privilege of having a free ticket to cover the country, and I ended up reporting in and you know going to and reporting in from 49 of the 50 states uh the only one i didn't make it to was uh north dakota only came within five miles but didn't go uh because i didn't really have a reason to go at that moment Uh, um uh i got to know many presidents uh as people as characters as um I wouldn't say friends because, in as a reporter, you don't. The people you cover aren't really your friends, right? You may feel in, in a friendly fashion to towards them at one point or another, um, uh, because as you understand them better, you naturally, for the most part, become more sympathetic as one human being to another. Uh, but but I did get to know them, and some I liked and some I didn't like so much. Um, The first one who comes to mind, uh, not in chronological order, was George W. Bush. Because I I sort of felt that uh, I knew George W. Bush, and I'd known his father, but I I knew George W. Bush partly because of Colgate. Really? Well, I always felt that, well, well, first of all, a friend of mine in the Beta House, I I was a member of Beta Theta Pi. Uh, proudly so and um, love my time uh, living in the house and one of one of my friends there was a guy named Jim milmo uh, who uh, has been very generous to Colgate and given a lot of money for uh, journalism speakers and so on there's a there's a there's a fund in his name in his father's name uh, Jim's father was editor of the uh, paper in Oneida and uh, and Jim had gone to Andover and he knew George W. at Andover, so I heard some stories about W. at Andover from my fraternity brother uh, Jim Milmo, and and also I felt that George W. was kind of like a Colgate guy. If he hadn't been named George Bush, he could have easily ended up in the Beta House at Colgate uh, because he was a fraternity guy, and. Uh, you know, when I first met him, he's, uh, I, I guess I'd spent a lot of time with him, but I think early on, I talked about college and I said, I was in fraternity. You know, he was the president of Deke at uh, Yale. And, um, I said, I was in beta and he said, Oh yeah, beta. And then he gave me the beta the supposedly secret beta handshake. <laughs> was he right? Somehow, he was pretty close. Yeah. Pretty <laughs> close. And of course that, I, that was really amusing and how he knew that I don't know but uh, he was he he was, he was a he was a fun guy to be with. Huh. I I was under the I was my 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 late father who was a great reader and student of history and politics. His favorite president was Harry Truman. And it was said of Harry Truman that uh, and people want the democrats of course wanted this to be true and I think it was true that he grew in office, in other words, that somehow in their wisdom, the American people had picked him, the people are always right, and so he'd grown into the job. And, and I grew up with that idea and, and believed it, uh, and, and thought and, and actually hoped after 9-11, after the shock of 9-11, that George W, as the son of a president, as a as a basically very canny guy, I mean, he wasn't so much book smart, but he was smarter than people realized. Uh, would grow in office uh, like Harry Truman had done, but it didn't happen. Certainly not quickly enough. But that's one president I thought I would I would uh, highlight. I'm sure we could do a whole episode
0: about presidents. we could, we could. We, we uh, could. So every I feel like every journalist has a few really big stories that they were never able to report. Either they were unable to get enough facts on paper or enough people on record um, to to provide enough um, background where editors are comfortable running the story or or whatever. For whatever reason, they know it's a good story and they were unable to report it. So I've been I'm curious what stories or what story stands out to you as one that you were never able to to report.
1: Well, that's a very good question. And and the answer is a big one, because um, the story that I didn't really get to fully write uh, has to do with the the roots of the conservative movement in America. Um, When I came to Washington, or even before when I was in, in Louisville, the politics of the right uh, were beginning to have great influence in the country. And uh, I saw it from the ground up again, starting in Kentucky. And I would say that the big, big story of my entire time in, in, in journalism was the, uh, the movement of evangelical Christians and others into the uh, Republican party, especially in the South. And I saw that initially in in Louisville, and then I when I came to Washington, it was taking root there. Ronald Reagan was elected president in 1980 in in good part because uh, evangelical Christians uh, through an organization called the moral majority and and others uh, rose up to support him and and uh, there was a group of, of uh, baby boomers that i got to know, uh, including the, uh, the uh, controversial, if not infamous Lee Atwater and his circle of people uh, who were political operatives who took advantage of and used uh, and encouraged uh, the rise of a new conservative politics uh, that was based in good measure on social issues. Uh, like abortion and prayer in the schools and parental traditionalism and all the things we now know today. And I spent a lot of time with these people, trying to get to know them, trying to understand their backgrounds, trying to uh, put them into a larger context of American politics. And it's not so much uh, a story that I didn't write as the book that I never wrote, (laughs) because I think that that that's the big, big story of my time in Washington, uh, the rise of the cultural right in America. Mm. And uh, so that's the big one that got away. And it was a really big one. Hmm.
0: We live in an era of intense political polarization. Um, And there's been some argument that journalism has contributed to the division by providing platforms for extreme viewpoints. And uh, the old both sides rule of, of giving equal weight to both sides of an argument. Um, is it ever not appropriate for a reporter to give an equal voice to both sides of an issue? And, and, and what is the proper way to handle um, this, this,
1: I guess, moment in our country? Well, it's a difficult moment because in my view, uh, Donald Trump, and his supporters don't play by any rules that we recognize as American. When one becomes so extreme as to be fundamentally so false as to merit very little by way of, of uh, the credence that reporting on it would give. I think we, we're in a tough spot here and, and, and I don't blame Donald Trump necessarily just himself I think Donald Trump is, is more of a culmination, more of a manifestation of deeper problems that have, gone, that are, that have taken root in America in modern times. Make no mistake, there've been, there been periods in our, in our public life going back to the beginning, going back to the Revolution, very war period and before, when uh, Americans were calling each other names, accusing each other of treason, accusing each other of lying. I mean, the, the, the history of, of our argument with ourselves uh, is not pretty and includes a civil war in which uh, uh, a huge number of Americans were, were kill, killed each other. But what's happened now is that our way of seeing has changed. In other words, in, in, my, in, in my view, uh, too many people, today have no concept whatsoever about how other people live. Uh, And that's because in in a good good measure because of media, Uh, the growth of of, uh, social media and its algorithms that reinforce previously held opinions and views, um, and the all enveloping nature of electronic media <clears throat> not, you're not just any longer <clears throat> sitting in front of a television screen some of the day. You're literally uh, absorbed all day long in uh, the alternative reality of, of uh, electronic communication. Uh, in the old days, you could look up from a newspaper and look around and see the real world now people don't look up at all from their phones uh, and their screens. And uh, that has made it harder for people to understand each other. And if you don't accept the basic humanity of people you're arguing with, uh, then uh, that way lies chaos. And I I think that's sort of uh, where we are. And as reporters, uh, uh, that poses a special problem. Because, uh, and this can be true of the left or the right, uh, they don't. because they don't acknowledge the humanity of people they're criticizing or arguing with, uh, they can go off the deep end themselves. And, and then what they say is not really worth repeating. As a matter of fact, it's worth not repeating because it just adds to the problem that we're trying to deal with. So it's a, it's a tough problem. I, my general view is uh, you, you've got to try to understand the humanity uh, of the people you're reporting on. You have to try to report both sides unless the other side has become so inhuman as to not be worthy of your, of your, of your time as a fellow human being. If it's not useful in any respect and if it's, if it's corrosive, and false and vicious, uh, you don't have to repeat it. Hmm.
0: I think you have an interesting perspective on this being someone who was an earlier adopter of online journalism. Uh, when you moved from Newsweek to the Huffington post, um, you know, I feel like online media was, that was almost like the birth of a lot of that online journalism. Um, and curious, particularly at the Huffington Post or maybe what you've seen elsewhere is um, it's kind of click driven. Everybody wants views. You know, I mean, everything is about uh, eyeballs and, and your audience. And how do you balance responsibility of delivering accurate news while also competing for attention um, in a crowded media landscape where, as you said, um, things like algorithms really influence what people are fed? Um, and, does nobody want broccoli anymore? Right? So so what can journalists do to, I guess, provide the news that needs to be shared in light of
1: that uh, that difficulty? Well, that's always been a problem. Yeah. I mean, that's always been the issue, how you mix the broccoli and the, and the candy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that goes back to the days of tabloid journalism. That goes back to the days of the pamphleteers. Uh, before, during, and after the Revolutionary War. It goes back to the very beginnings of the idea of news. What's news? Uh, News is something that excites human curiosity, uh, pleasure, or fear. Uh, And that's always been true. Uh, The difference, as I said uh, just before, is that social media and and news platforms can be all-enveloping. In other words, they take over your whole life, and as opposed to be ju- just being part of your life, and 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 that's that's the real danger. Uh, and at the Huffington Post, I, I was hired partly to uh, not to supply the broccoli, uh, but but to uh, uh, make sure that we were covering national politics well and properly, and and that while there was plenty of room for advocacy. And the Huffington Post was kind of start, was started as a uh, kind of alternative to the, uh, to the Drudge Report on the right.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: that's how Ariana originally conceived of it. She realized that in order for it to be really successful, you wanted to reach as broad as possible an audience. And if you're just talking to Hollywood liberals and, uh, and, 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 and such, you know, you weren't going to be able to grow the site successfully or successfully enough. I mean, I, I honor Ariana for uh, deeply uh, for wanting to try to make it as broad based as possible. And that's one reason why she brought me in uh, and a number of others. And we succeeded. Uh, there was a time when the Huffington Post uh, had way more traffic than the New York Times. Um but we didn't have the, after after uh, the Huffington Post was sold to um, AOL, what was left of the AOL empire, and they spent a lot of money initially, they they cut way back, and we were never able to, to really duplicate the, um, the depth and breadth of the New York Times, which eventually and successfully transferred all its engines of reporting and editing uh, to the online space. I mean, they still have a print newspaper but uh, they're very successful uh, they're very successful online no you can't you can't just rely on clickbait because if you just rely on clickbait people will understand that it's just clickbait mm-hmm. and then you lose credibility eventually you, you, you may have a sort of short infusion uh, you know it's like having a couple of uh, beers at uh, jug uh, but then and it uh, disappears.
0: All right. You've covered the environment uh, and, and environmental issues, I should say, for, for most of your, um, your career, um, including the Al Gore hearings related to global warming and climate change. And um, while the timeline may have been off, it's clear that we live in a world that is severely impacted by a changing climate. Um, curious if there are any big environmental stories today that you think may be underreported or
1: overlooked. Well, I uh, I think that this year we're going to look back on this year, 2023, as the year when uh, even the most uh, comfortable the people in the most comfortable parts of the planet, people with m- money, people who think they were immune, uh, are going to join the rest of the world and realize that. Uh, this planet could become uninhabitable in the foreseeable future. I think this is, this, this is the time of a profound shift. Uh, and I think that fact, uh, that awareness is underreported. Uh, so that's, what's, what's happened is the environmental beat has now become the big story on the planet. Uh, that's the big political story. And if I were out there today uh, as a lead reporter, I'd be covering the hell out of that Uh, and using my experience with detailed issues back in the day in a more political context. Um, And um, yes, income inequality is a big deal. Yes, the future of uh, democracy is uh, a colossal story. Uh, but this is the other this is the other big one, and I and I say that not because I was an environmental reporter so much, although I guess that makes me a little more aware of it. But I really do think that this is a, a turning point, and I think that Colgate is uh, to bring it back to the campus, ideally positioned to uh, be a major contributor in that area. And we have a number of environmental uh, majors, uh, what, what we used to call concentrations now majors. And, uh, and, uh, and I even think it should be part of the core curriculum. Hmm. Uh, and I, I, plan to tell, you know, give Brian Casey yet another piece of unsolicited advice from me. <laughs> and, and I'm, I think I'm famous or infamous among a, a long succession of Colgate presidents and sending them, uh, memos, presumptuous memos about what they should be doing. So you send those,
0: be- you send those to me too, Howard.
1: Yes, I sent them to you. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so that's, that's going to be in the next one. Very good. Well, I always appreciate hearing from you.
0: And now, uh, even better, we've reached question 13. So mm-hmm. uh, I always end with something a little lighter. And, um, you know, your book, which was published in 2008, titled The 13 American Arguments, uh, I have to ask if the 13 is a coincidence or is it an intentional nod
1: to your alma mater? It wasn't intentional, but after people started asking me about it, I started becoming very coy in my answers to let them (laughs) think that that was the case if they wanted to. Uh, I actually wish there was a 14th that I left out. Uh, What I tried to find were uniquely American arguments Mm -hmm. uh, to the extent I could, based on our history and based on my covering politics. One I left out was the gun debate. Oh, uh, and that was a, a dumb uh, uh, omission on my part because that is pretty uniquely American and uniquely troubling. Uh, but other than that, I was very proud of it. I was glad I did it. Uh, it was the hardest thing I ever did because, as, as you know, as a daily reporter or a weekly reporter, you aren't necessarily gated to just go all out into something that could last forever. <laughs> And uh, uh, it could be of unlimited length. So uh, I I was proud of it. And if people want to think it has to do with uh, my alma mater, I'm not only willing to do that, I'm delighted that they think so. Howard Feynman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. It was an absolute delight.
0: Thank you. Awesome. Um, Tell your friends and family about the podcast. If you have any questions, email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number. And until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications and Events. Episodes are recorded on campus in Lathrop Hall. Executive Producer, Colgate Vice President for Communications and Events, L. Hazel Jack, Producer and host, Dan DeVries. And audio production by Brian Ness. Learn about all the happenings at Colgate at colgate.edu, colgatemagazine.com, and colgateresearchmagazine.com.